The Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34, and it can be found in the Church Bibles on page 685. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. Do they not sow or reap or store away in barns? And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or, What shall we drink? Or, What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry, about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Father, the Lord Jesus has uh, spoken words that we desperately need to hear this morning, and yet that we find very difficult to accept and to put into action. So I pray that you would help us to see um, just why it is that it's true, just how it is that we can implement it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, new microphone. I'm sorry <laughs> if it's not working as it ought to. Does the game need to be changed? I'm sure we can fix it in future weeks. I'm sorry you have to suffer through it this week. This morning, we're continuing on with the um, we're continuing on with our study of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous block of teaching. Uh, in the first half of chapter six, Jesus was exposing the difference between true and false religion. 
with the key difference being this, false religion is self-centered and true religion is God-centered. So those practicing a false religion practice their good deeds in front of others so that they'll receive praise and honor. Uh, but those practicing true religion do their good deeds before God alone, an audience of one, as it were, um, seeking only his honor and praise. And Jesus made that point with different examples. Christians, they don't give to the needy with a, a big song and dance. They do it quietly. Uh, they're generous in secret. Christians, they don't pray uh, like the hypocrites do in front of others so that they can be thought of how spiritual they are. But they do it um, in quiet dependence on their Heavenly Father. And Christians, they don't fast to win the approval of others. Uh, they do it simply to honor God. And in each example, Jesus motivates us by talking about the rewards that we'll receive. At seven times in the first 18 verses of chapter 6, we hear rewards, rewards, rewards in heaven. And I think his point is clear. When it, when it comes to religion, we can either be honored by people or we can be honored by God. But we can't have both. We cannot do both. So we have to decide. Uh, whose opinion do I care more about? Other people's opinions of me or God's opinion of me? And so as we come to verses 19 to 35, I think Jesus is trying to persuade us to stop trying to have it both ways. He wants us to stop being double-minded, to, to, to stop trying to get both rewards, people's praise and God's praise. And in order to persuade us, he tells us three things. The first is that earthly treasures will never satisfy our hearts. Second is that God will accept nothing less than wholehearted devotion. And the third is that God will fully provide for people that are wholeheartedly devoted to him. So first, earthly treasures can never satisfy our hearts. There's a disease that is rampant in Hong Kong. And I'm certain that members of our church suffer from it as well. It may even be people in your own home suffering from it. It's a blight that ravages families. It poisons faith. It leads to despair. And yet it often goes unnoticed uh, we are often convinced that, well, I know that some people suffer from this disease, but not me. You may not even know if you're infected. Uh, and I'm talking about the plague of materialism. It, it is a plague. When we take a moment to think about it, we see how very troubling it is. You know, we can see its effects everywhere. It might first appear in our childhood, particularly around December, maybe, as we, we wonder, we think about, we talk about what could possibly be under that tree in our home, in our living room. 
We have this incredible anticipation. Is it the must-have toy? The one that all my friends are going to get? It seems like everything hangs in the balance when you're a child around Christmas, doesn't it? You're shaking things, you're, you're trying to find out. And then we get the toy. We get the thing that we've been so desperately desiring. We're absolutely elated for a while. And then we break it or we grow tired of it and then we begin to focus on the next thing, the thing that we must have for our birthday. After all, everyone else has one. But it isn't limited to children. We, we can see it very easily in children, but its, it's effects in adults can be far, far worse, I think. Um, as our means increase, so does our desire for satisfaction and security. And that satisfaction, that security, it's always just around the corner, isn't it? It's always just right there if we just get that thing. And so we, we overextend ourselves to get a mortgage. And we know that we might just be able to pay it, but it'll be worth it, we think, because then we'll be happy. And we work late for years climbing the career ladder, knowing that if we just, if we just make partner, then we'll have made it. And we fill up our portfolios with, with stocks and our weekends with fun. And, and when we hit middle age, we wonder, why am I still not satisfied? And we keep expecting the next thing to finally do it for us. But it doesn't. And so perhaps we then pour ourselves into our children. Well, if I can't be happy, my kids can be happy at least, and so we buy them the thing for Christmas, right? And we start the cycle all over again. But the harsh truth that Jesus has to say to us this morning is that none of it will satisfy ever because earthly treasures will never satisfy our hearts. Verse 19 says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Attempts to satisfy ourselves with the treasures of earth, they will always fail, even when we store up a whole lot of them, because they are passing away, says Jesus. The materialist has the same problem as the religious hypocrite. The reward they both work for is petty, and it's passing. Sometimes earthly treasures pass away very quickly. Some of you will have will very well remember the, the financial crash of 2008. And we might, again, be seeing something similar in Hong Kong this year. Now, very quickly, businesses close. Very quickly, uh, families are affected by these things. People who've devoted their working lives to businesses suddenly have nothing to show for it. You know, they poured 30 years in, and now, nothing. Those who spent decades working long hours pinching every penny, well, now they're in ne negative equity. 
it can go quickly, but sometimes it goes slowly, almost imperceptibly. The, the passing away when it goes slowly, I think, could be even more dangerous because we can just about convince ourselves that it's sticking around, that it's not passing, but inflation is rising, buildings are decaying, my health is dwindling, age-related weaknesses are accumulating, you know, we can almost convince ourselves it's not happening when it's slow, but it is happening. Even the most durable, even the most secure things are passing away because we are passing away. We are passing away. The health I prize dwindles with age. The name I've made for myself in business, it's forgotten the day after I retire. Nobody cares about me in my business then. The wealth I've accumulated for myself, it'll go to whoever comes after me, and who knows whether they'll be wise or foolish. And everything I've worked for will disappear. Now, the situation is bleak, isn't it? It's desperately bleak. But how desperately we need to hear it in Hong Kong. We live in a city obsessed with storing up what's passing away. You know, I've um, joined a running group that meets occasionally. It's um, a, a men's group. And I was sharing a drink together afterwards with some of these guys. And they've been here for decades. And they're telling me just how intoxicating it is working in Hong Kong. When you're making money, you make a whole lot of money. And, and so you feel the thrill of it, right? It, it's coming in from everywhere, and, and you chase after it, wanting to continue that momentum, wanting to see those, those figures mount up more and more. You don't want to miss any opportunity to be raking it in. That's intoxicating. But then, when something goes wrong, uh, when the deal disintegrates, when the lenders are at the door demanding their, their repayment, well, the adrenaline of desperation kicks in. And then you're chasing after it because if you don't, you'll be out on the streets. You won't be able to provide for your family. Whatever it takes to survive has to be done. And so whether you're raking the money in or whether you're desperately uh, trying to make ends meet, well, life is all about the material for many people here. And so these non-Christian guys that I'm speaking to are telling me about this enslaving mindset. I should have said to them, why are you wasting your life storing up earthly treasures? Now you see? I wasn't thinking clearly enough. I said to them something about how it sounds oppressive, spiritually oppressive to me. I should have just pointed out like Jesus does, been very clear. Now don't you see what a waste to work for what's passing away? Jesus shows us the harsh reality of our situation so that we'll see how very clear and how very good his alternative is. And he does give us an alternative. He shows us a better way that doesn't lead to despair. He pleads with us in verse 20, store up for yourselves 
treasures in heaven, where moths and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. How do we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven? Well, in the immediate context of chapter 6, we see in verses 1 to 18 some examples. We give to the needy, we, we pray, we, we fast. And Jesus says these things earn us a reward. When done to honor God, that is, not when done to impress others. But I don't think that list in chapter 6 is exhaustive. I think there are lots of things that we can do that show that we're working for rewards in heaven rather than earthly rewards. But Jesus' message is that whatever we do to honor God will receive a heavenly reward. As we invest our money, as we invest our time, as we invest our prayers and ourselves in ways that honor God, we're storing up treasures in places where it will not dwindle, it is not passing away. Everything else is passing away. Only what's done for Christ is going to last, ultimately. And so it's worth asking, where are you storing your treasure? Where am I storing my treasure? And Jesus gives us a diagnostic test to help us think about it. In verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So if you can identify where your treasure is, you know where your heart is, says Jesus. Where is your treasure? It's a piercing question. It gets literally to the heart of things, your heart, my heart, based on how you spend your time how you make your decisions, where you invest your money, well, that will tell you where your heart is. Where would an outside observer say that your treasure is, I wonder? And we can convince ourselves, my heart's right, even if the things that I'm doing, the ways that I'm living, don't necessarily reflect my heart. My heart's in the right place, but Jesus says no. Your treasure's in the right place to show you where your heart is. A few questions can tell us a lot about where a treasure is stored. Uh, what do you daydream about when you have free time? What do you worry about the most? What do you measure others by? If they have it, well, they're in your good books. If they, they don't have it, well, you don't really need anything to do with them. What are you convinced that you cannot be happy without? These questions can help us see where our hearts really are. They can expose whether we're treasuring the things of the earth that are passing away or the things of heaven that will last for eternity. So seeing very clearly what we're treasuring is important because Jesus goes on to explain God will accept nothing less than our wholehearted devotion. God will accept nothing less than our wholehearted devotion. The first illustration that Jesus uses in verses 22 to 23 is one of vision. He says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I think other translations might capture the image here a bit better, but Jesus is saying if your eyes are good, 
he chooses the word aplos, which means something like single or simple. Okay? So with that nuance, we, we might be able to understand a little bit better what Jesus is saying. Everyone who's ever needed glasses or been dizzy or just had a bit too much to drink knows that single vision is much better than double vision, right? You want single vision. When you are seeing clearly, you are enlightened as to the world around you. You can make your way around the world. When you have double vision, you're running into things, you're falling over. You're in darkness, unable to make your way around. So Jesus is saying if we are single-minded, solely focused on being devoted to God, seeking to store up heavenly treasures alone, well, we will be able to navigate life well. Whenever problems come, we can navigate it because we're seeing clearly what's important. But if we're double-vision, if we're double-minded, we'll fall all over the troubles when they come. We won't navigate it. We'll get hurt by it. If we're trying to store up both earthly treasures and heavenly treasures, we will stumble blindly through life, unable to navigate with clarity. It's a truth he makes even clearer in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And again, Jesus forces his disciples to see things clearly, to face reality, to give up double-mindedness. Because I think so often our first instinct is to do exactly what Jesus says we cannot do. You... No one can serve two masters, he says. You cannot serve both God and money, he says. And we say, I think I probably can. I think I probably do. I do it pretty well, Jesus. We try our hardest to make it work. Maybe we serve God on Sunday and we serve money in the week. Or maybe we give little pieces uh, of our each day to God. Maybe we read the Bible in the morning, we pray maybe, and we're serving God that way. But when we get to the office, it's money. That's our God. But Jesus says, however well we think we might be able to pull it off, you cannot do it. I cannot do it. And certain things will expose our double-mindedness, not least the way we use our money. If I put aside a certain amount for the church or for charity, I'm not saying that uh, giving to the church is the only way of honoring God with your, with your money. But I'm saying if you decide to put aside church for the money, uh, sorry, money for the church or for charity, and a certain amount for other expenses, and then your car needs an unexpected repair, which pot of money does that come from? Which fund do you take it out of? Do you forego the holiday you planned and, and disappoint the family? Or does the portion you've devoted to God take the hit? Is my Christian giving sacrificial? Or is it just the leftovers, the, the whatever I've got in my pocket as the, the bag passes? And though we might be able to fool ourselves, we might even be able to fool those around us, we will not fool God. He knows whether we're wholeheartedly devoted to him. 
And frankly, he's not interested in 50% devotion or 80% or 99% devotion. He makes that clear from the beginning. You know, the first commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. He wants all of you. Now, we cannot store both earthly treasures and heavenly treasures. We, we cannot successfully navigate life with double vision. We cannot serve two masters. But we've got to choose who we're going to serve. Because God accepts nothing less than wholehearted devotion. But lastly, I, I mean, that is a big weight, okay? That, that is hard-hitting, isn't it? But I think what Jesus says lastly is the motivation for us to hear him and to take heed of what he has to say because he tells us in the last section of chapter 6 that God makes full provision for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. Heaven or earth, God or money, where is your allegiance? And if that sounds like a stark contrast, a harsh call, and it makes you uncomfortable, you understand what Jesus is saying then. He's making us uncomfortable, trying to persuade us. And in verses 25 to 34, we see what the result will be. In effect, he's saying, choose to live for earthly treasure, and your life will be full of anxiety, unending anxiety. But choose to serve God, and you will enjoy his fatherly care. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. And the effect of pursuing earthly treasures or serving money, it's a pervasive sense of anxiety. That's always the result of, of idolatry. Anxiety is always the result of idolatry because idols make for harsh gods. You, know? you have to put the work in. You have to make the sacrifices to the gods. And maybe, just maybe, the idol will then give you what you want. Because we can see that everything on earth is passing away, we know that, well, if I want to be clothed next year, I need to work. If I want to have a house, a roof over my head next year, I need to work, lest we be caught out. We must constantly be watching and working and striving and struggling because we have to provide for ourselves. Nobody else is going to do it. Life is full of anxiety, because if we rest, everything is lost. But if we pursue heavenly treasures, if, if we serve God, then suddenly life looks very different indeed, because, well, first, Jesus argues that from the greater to the lesser, in verse 25, if, is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? If God created you, if he sustains your life and breath moment by moment, isn't he able to provide the food that you need to continue living? And isn't the God who knit your body together in your mother's womb, who uh, made you in your glorious complexity, isn't he able to provide a, a few cloths to, to cover yourself with? Of course he is. From the greater to the lesser, you see, Jesus is arguing. He's done these greater things. 
They'll do these lesser things. Why would you worry about it? Next, Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater by pointing us to nature. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So he goes from the lesser to the greater now. If you look at the birds and the lilies of the field, you'll see that God doesn't just miraculously fill their mouths with food. No, they, they have to go about and search for the seed or, or the worms, but they survive. The, the grass of the field has to grow roots and has to, to grow leaves, but they survive. God provides for them by means of their work. The birds are not kept up at night wondering, where are the worms for tomorrow going to come from? Will there be enough seed to eat tomorrow? No. When the winter comes, there's no more food around. The birds don't cry out, you know, in concern. No, they fly to where they can find food for the winter. So if it looks, if God looks after the birds like that, if he looks after the plants like that, how much more will he look after those who know him as a heavenly father? If we're made in his image, he's more concerned with us than he is with the birds and the plants, according to scripture. Especially if we know him as our heavenly father. And I think we, we might just think, isn't this a bit simplistic, Jesus? Uh, grass withers, birds die. Their lives aren't so sentimentally simple, so safe, and neither is mine. And I think Jesus would say, you're right. The birds sometimes do fall dead out of the sky. And in the desert climate of Israel, verse 30 says, the grass is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Jesus isn't saying, do not be anxious over and over again three times in these verses because he's promising that our lives will be long and safe and easy. He's not promising us that. He's saying, do not be anxious because nothing in your life will happen apart from the knowledge and will of your heavenly Father. That's why you don't need to be anxious. He sovereignly controls the universe. He will provide for those who seek his kingdom first. Verse 31, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the, the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself each day, has enough trouble of its own. You know, if you lose your job, you will not lose your job apart from the knowledge and will of your Heavenly Father. You, you cannot come into an illness apart from the knowledge and will of your Heavenly Father. And don't make any mistake, there will be trouble today. There will be enough trouble for tomorrow, says Jesus. So he's not promising trouble free. Jesus is saying there will be trouble. So if anybody ever tells you, if you just have enough faith, your life will be easy, your life will be simple, uh, you won't have to worry about anything, they're lying, they're not saying what Jesus says. Jesus says, there will be concerns, there will be trouble. 
but rather, if you have faith, you'll know that what you need is provided by your Heavenly Father. And He promises that when you wholeheartedly live for Him, He will provide for your every need. Not your every want, but your every need. So when troubles come, our Father is saying to us, I will provide for your need in this. As our city rages, we shouldn't be surprised to see the pagans run after all these things. If they want uh, security, if they want uh, freedom, if, if they want... Uh, um, Whatever they want. Well, if they have to get it with violence, that's how they have to get it, because nobody's going to look after them, as far as they know. Right? That's how pagans have to live. They have to run after it and get it themselves, because nobody's going to give it to them. But Christians, Christians, we work diligently like the birds. We put down roots like the grass, and then we rest from our worry, knowing that our Heavenly Father, who is interested in our good, who knows our needs, will provide today, tomorrow, for eternity. Our Heavenly Father will see to our every need. You see how simple trust in our Father frees us from worry, from anxiety. After all, he's given up his son for us. How could he not give us every good thing? Our God will provide for our good. In small ways, in large ways, we don't have to worry, we don't have to scramble, we don't have to stress. Just do the work he's put before us, and we trust him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow it will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus has promised your providential care for us as we turn to you. I pray that we would have full confidence that as we face worry and anxiety this week, that we would hand it over to you and say, uh, help us, look after us, provide for us, and that we would find you more than able. In Jesus' name, amen.